Well, let us turn to God's Word, if you would please return to the book of Titus. We have been in Titus as a series over the past number of months. The Lord continues to address us through His Word. Each week as I prepare, and I know Devin does the same, the first first responsibility we have in preparing to preach God's Word is to first let First, let God's word address us personally, so that what we are speaking, we have experienced. And now this morning, I'm standing before you, trusting that the Lord is going to address you and that you will hear him. So let us listen to God speak In Titus 2, beginning in verse 9. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Father, we hear your word this morning. And we ask that as you have just addressed us through your word, we might continue to hear you speak. Lord, I pray for this church that this morning in their attentiveness to your speaking, you would help each person become more like Christ. And I pray that each person would come away this morning encouraged and strengthened, but more importantly, closer to you. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to faithfully Speak as the Holy Spirit speaks through me. In Christ's name, amen. Paul's letter to Titus highlights the difficulties this young pastor is facing on the island of Crete, where Christianity had taken hold and churches had been established. Paul's concern lies in helping these believers in a morally bankrupt world. They are vulnerable, and because of their vulnerability to the false teachers that are teaching heresy, uh, many of them are, in a sense, returning to their old ways. They're living the way they used to live before coming to faith in Christ. They're listening to these, as Paul says in, in chapter 1, empty talkers and deceivers who lead Christians away from God's truth, these liars and corrupt leaders who devote themselves to myths and to wicked behavior. And so Paul, Paul instructs Titus, he tasks Titus to set things right in the church. And though this is a formidable task, Paul's confidence doesn't rest in Titus. 
Paul's confidence rests in God's faithfulness to the church that he loves. That he, the church he will preserve, the people he will preserve. In in chapter 1, at the beginning, Paul says, Paul, a servant of God, or that could be a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And here are the words that Paul trust in and rest in in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul's confidence is, is not in Titus's innate ability to somehow set things in order. Paul's confidence is in God, that God promised before the ages began that, that there would be eternal life. And that eternal life isn't just eternal life after we die. There's, there's the experience of eternal life right now as children of God. And it is those promises of God that hold us firm and hold us fast in what Paul is anchored to when he is writing to Titus. This is an unassailable promise of God. And, and the, the Cretan, who, Cretans who become Christians, their belief in Jesus Christ, the gospel, has saved them and will continue. Paul is instructing here. They are God's elect and he will continue to transform them more into the image of his son. So in the midst of this hard culture, the midst of this immoral culture, the midst of this, this world around the Cretan church that is... a, a it's, it's assailing them. It, it's, it's attacking them. It's trying to undermine their faith. Paul is saying, God has promised. God has, has promised. And then Paul goes on in this letter to ensure that not only are they aware of God's promises, but they're also to be aware of what God is requiring of them as those who are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And in this passage here, Paul makes it clear that, yeah, there are things that, that each of the, the members of these churches are to do. And in this verse particularly, he's speaking of slaves. But at the end of this, this, these two verses, he says this, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul always wants to connect imperatives, commands with indicatives, what God has done. And so before we read about understanding in everything, being well-pleasing and not argumentative and not pilfering, but showing all good faith in everything, he says this. Even though it's at the end, he says this. Listen, you will adorn the doctrine of God, your Savior. You do this because God is your Savior. It's not a life of pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. Not a life of doing it with our own ability and effort. It is the transforming grace of God. We adorn the doctrine of God, Paul is saying, because God is our Savior. So Paul's instructions are anchored in this 
unchanging truth. God is their Savior. And that is why they are now different. And that is why they must continue to pursue a godly life. And that's a truth that he continues to affirm even in, in the, later in the chapter in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. And to make sure that that Titus rightly keeps this truth before the Cretan church. These believers who are struggling. Paul ends this chapter with this. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Don't disregard this simple but profound truth that God is your Savior. And all that he has promised. Paul gives instructions to Titus that are simple and clear. He tells them, you are to do two things, Titus. You are to teach sound doctrine, which is gospel truth, that God is their savior. And model godly behavior for the Cretan believers. So that their lives, their lives will make the gospel attractive to those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Paul knows that the gospel's attractiveness depends upon these ordinary believers living day by day and including slaves living very different lives from the culture that they are in. Each church had members who were slaves. And although slaves, they were still brothers and sisters in Christ. And as Paul has written, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, no Greek or barbarian, no free man or, or slave. All stand equally before him. The New Testament verses that address slavery can be perplexing. Because here, slave is literally slave. This, there are humans who are masters to other humans. The New Testament verses that address slavery can be perplexing because they don't do what we expect them to do, which is condemn slavery. When we read this text, our our thoughts can understandably, in mine did, travel back to the wicked and evil injustice of American slavery. And we can have a a visceral, a physical experience, response in wondering, why don't they condemn slavery? Now, there are a number of reasons that they don't validate the reason for slavery, but they explain the why, the economic issues. But what Paul does address here is he doesn't, he doesn't address institutional slavery 
and its evil, what he does address is who these slaves are and how they are to live in Christ. Having been converted, these slaves have been converted, they, now, they must be different in behavior and they must be different in attitude, even in their current situation as slaves. Now listen, slavery was a reality in the ancient world, but it was never, it was not a divine institution. There are, there are many differences as well between ancient slavery and what we understand as modern slavery from the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. O- Old Testament laws, at least within Israel, helped to regulate slavery. Again, not institutionalize it, but to regulate it. Israel's laws reflected a far greater sensitivity than other ancient nations. Many, many slaves in this era were more than just what are known as chattel, just something that was owned or... Some were teachers, some were accountants, some, some were, were, were more educated than their, their masters. Um, some were administrators, um, some were doctors. Uh, many were considered members of their household that they served. So, but rather than supporting the, the institution of slavery, Paul's gospel actually begins to undermine it slowly. begins to unravel its practice. In 1 Timothy 1.9, Paul condemns slave traders along with murderers and the sexually immoral, showing that, that God is not silent in the matter. As we study God's inspired word this morning, let's just be careful not to let the evil failings of human history cloud our ability to hear God speak to us in this passage. So what is Paul's purpose in addressing slaves? And what relevance does it have for us in this day and age? Even in their situation, these slaves are members of God's family and they're expected to live as followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And they're to fulfill the most important responsibility that every Christian has and is called to fulfill, living for the glory of God. Now, as with other groups that he has previously addressed, old men, older women, young women, young men, and now he addresses slaves, each believer he is communicating will either adorn the gospel by their behavior or disgrace the gospel by their behavior. At stake is the glory of God. And to ensure that we grasp the intent of this passage, I want us to first be clear what is meant when we say the glory of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes, defines the glory of God this way. He says, God's glory is the essential nature of God. It is that which makes God, God. The glory of God is the sum and substance of who he is. No one can add anything to God's intrinsic glory, nor can anyone take away from it. The glory of God is never increasing nor decreasing. It is forever the same. If there is one term which describes God more than any other, it is this term, glory. And it is in the Lord Jesus Christ we see the glory of God 
at its greatest height. God's glory is who God is. And it is true, we can't take away or add to God's glory. But we can put God's glory on display. Because Jesus Christ, who is God's glory at its greatest on display, has changed us. And we represent Christ Hence, we are called Christians. That is who we are. Paul tells Titus, Godly living adorns the doctrine of God by putting on display the transforming power and work of the gospel. That's what brings God glory. Now, prior to trusting Christ, Listen, my friends, you and I never lived to glorify God. We lived to fulfill every selfish desire that we had, sinning each step of the way to get what we wanted. And the Bible teaches us everywhere that God is holy and absolutely perfect in his being and his ways. And the primary way God reveals his holiness, one of the primary ways, is his Hatred of sin. He stands far off from sin and from the sinner and all that is evil. And prior to coming to faith in Christ, although we are created in the image of God, we didn't do anything to bear the image of God. We don't bear the image of a holy and perfect and pure God, but that of a sinner. Listen, our sin is why slavery exists. Long before there was any human institution of slavery, mankind became enslaved to sin in the garden, which eventually led to the human institution of slavery. And because he is holy, and because God condemns sins, sinners are condemned. And we are sinners condemned to die. And that is why we never lived for God's glory. We only live for ourselves. But, as Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And now, by that grace, you can live. These slaves can live for the glory of God. That is what Paul is after here. This wonderful salvation has transformed all who trust in Christ. We go from slaves of sin to, get this, not free. Although there is this 
paradox because in Scripture says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And yet, we don't go from slavery of sin to just pure freedom. We go from slavery of sin to slaves of Christ. That's where we go. We never move away from being slaves. And the question is this morning, and it's the question Paul is really after here, what kind of slave are you? And in Titus 2, 9 through 10, Paul describes two kinds of slaves. And the title of this message this morning is The Right Kind of Slave. And so now I finally get to my points. Long introduction, but I do have some points this morning. And the two points are this. The question is, which one are you? A slave of sin, still entrapped by sinful habits, or a slave of Christ? Aggressively pursuing holiness. Paul talks to these slaves. Slaves are to be, he says, submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. If we live like we did before Christ saved us, we're still a slave of sin. We're, we're not submissive. These slaves would not be submissive to their masters in everything. They would, they would not be well-pleasing and argumentative. Now, the reason Paul is making this list here is because these are the struggles that slaves have. Struggling with submissiveness, struggling with being well-pleasing, struggling with being argumentative, struggling with stealing, which is pilfering, struggling with being faithful, showing all good faith, talking about faithfulness, just faithfulness in the things that they do. It is still possible, even as Christians, to live as though we are still slaves of sin. And if we follow our selfish passions and, des- and desires, we return to the slavery of sin that we've been freed from when we believed in Christ. Paul implores all those in this, in this whole section from verse 1 of chapter 2 all the way to 10, he implores them, he says, to renounce ungodliness and to, to live godly lives that adorn the gospel, including those in a situation called slavery. That there is no one exempt. Once your life has been transformed by Christ, no one is exempt to live for Christ. If you have been transformed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, if Christ has come and you have believed and trusted in Christ, you are different. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. And Paul is saying, look, if that's the case, I don't care if you're old, if you're young, Or if you're a slave, your life looks different. Very different. These redeemed slaves on Crete are new creations in Christ. And they must not go back to the way they lived prior to salvation. And and it begins with submission because ultimately... Their first submission is to the Lord, as is ours. The same is true for us. We submit. 
Listen, we all have others in our lives we submit to. Parents and children, employee and employer, pastor and church member, husbands and wives, civil authorities. We are to be characterized, these slaves are to be characterized by humble submission. That's who we are to be. And not by our former practice of grumbling and complaining and not obeying and showing disrespect and being argumentative, stealing, whether it's time, money, paper clips, unfaithfulness, being lazy to those who God has placed in authority over us. No, no, no. Slaves, whether your masters are believers or unbelievers... You submit in the fear of Christ. You submit because ultimately you're submitting to the Lord. You submit because by your humble submission, it adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is sovereign. He cares. And he is aware of every situation. He knows that these slaves are slaves. He knows that some have evil masters and some have Christian masters. He's aware of all of that. And he doesn't call them to run away, but to submit. And we have a wonderful story, just one, one book over in Philemon. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus stole from Philemon. Not only did he steal, he ran away. And where does he run? He runs to Rome. And who does he run into in Rome? Of all places, of all people, he runs into Paul. And Paul leads him to faith in Christ. And then... Paul sends him back to Philemon. That's what the letter of Philemon is about. And Paul doesn't remove Onesimus' slavery, but he does appeal to Philemon. And and you see the hints of this unraveling of slavery. You see the hints that, that Paul is saying to Philemon, not only do I want you to forgive him, listen, I want you to treat him as a brother. Not as a slave, but as a brother. And you see, later on, Onesimus is doing the work of the Lord. We cannot go back to the way we were prior to faith in Christ. That was Paul is saying here. Slaves, be, be submissive. Don't, don't be unsubmissive. Be in everything. Be well-pleasing. Don't, don't argue. Don't, don't live like you used to live. Proverbs 26, 11 is a stunning and graphic example of what it's like to go back to the slavery of sin. The writer of Proverbs says this, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who returns to his folly. That's what it means to return back to the slavery of sin the way we were. How 
Listen, how can one live as a slave of Christ if he is still a slave to sin? No one can serve two masters. No one. Paul's concern here is not for their human slavery. His concern is for their slavery of the way they used to be. And that's God's concern for us. That we're not entrapped by the sins that once held us captive prior to coming to faith in Christ. And Christians are still capable of becoming entrapped to the sins that once held them captive. These redeemed slaves, we are redeemed slaves, must not go back to the way we once they once lived. <clears throat> Listen, know no this. Paul would never appeal to these believers to do this, to live godly lives, if he didn't think it was possible. He wouldn't appeal to them to adorn the gospel by the way they live if he didn't think it was possible. But he knows that by the transforming grace of God, it is possible. It is possible. All can live for Christ because all who are in Christ are no longer under the power of sin. Paul in Romans 6 verse 14 says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Sin no longer has power under you. And in Romans 6, Paul goes on to describe the gospel's saving work in our lives from the slavery of sin to becoming a slave of Christ. Romans, Romans 6 is just, is just filled with truth. In, in, in 6, 6, Paul says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. God in Christ freed us. In Romans 6:17, Paul goes on, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And again in in 6:20, Paul goes on, for when you were slaves of sin, And he says, for the end of those things is shame and death, but now you've been set free from sin. So Paul is appealing. He's exhorting. He's urging. Urging. The ESV doesn't have it in in this, in Titus, but the NASB and a number of others say, Urge slaves, as he does, urge young men, teach slaves. Say, listen, don't go back like a dog to its vomit. You're no longer a slave of sin. Sin no longer has power and dominion over you. Christ has transformed you. And he's given you his Holy Spirit. He sent the Spirit that the Spirit might dwell in you to empower you and strengthen you and convict you 
that you might live for Christ and adorn the gospel. And that's point two. Are you a slave of sin or point two, a slave of Christ? A slave, listen, a slave of Christ is the only kind of slave to be. We, we have a new identity in Christ when we come to faith. We're no longer slaves of sin. We're slaves of Christ. That's our new identity. Slaves of righteousness. Slaves of God. And as slaves of Christ, we are to, in everything, adorn the gospel. We are to be submissive to those in authority in our lives. We are to be well-pleasing. We are not to be argumentative. We're not to steal. We're to show faithfulness, all good faith. So again, that in everything. So there's nothing in our lives that isn't covered in how we live and how we adorn the gospel. So the smallest thing that we do. So when I grumble, that Maryland's made fish for dinner again. I act like a slave of sin, not a slave of Christ. Argumentative. Why fish? Because it's healthy for you. I don't want to be healthy. I want something that's going to stick inside of me. (laughs) It's everyday life where we adorn the gospel. It's how we relate to one another as husbands and wives. It's how we relate to our children and our children relate to us. It's how we relate to our employers. It's how we stand in line at the grocery store waiting for the person who's counting the potatoes one at a time as they go through the self-checkout. It is, it is just our attitudes. It's what we're thinking in our hearts. Are we returning like a dog? Are we becoming a slave to sin? Or, or it might be the, the hidden habits, the sinful habits, whether it's pornography and lust or it's anger or laziness. Brothers and sisters, those, those sins tempt us every day. And the question, the question is, What kind of slave do we want to be? Listen. (laughs) These these slaves, they, it turns out they actually were, many of them had, in the church, they had masters who were Christians. And they were tending to take advantage of these, these, these masters who were believers. Paul addresses them in First Timothy. He says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Doesn't matter the situation we're in. We are. We are either going to be slaves of Christ or slaves 
of sin. Listen, I understand. Submission, submission is not the normal attitude of a sinner. No one naturally leans towards submission. Paul talks about wives submitting to their husbands, slaves submitting to their masters, children submitting to their parents. And for us, employees submitting to their employers. Or church members submitting to their pastors. It's not an easy lean. But when we come to faith in Christ, our inner desires change. And as Paul writes in Philippians that we are to become more like Christ. How? By by not considering ourselves more important than others, but not considering others more important than ourselves. And when we live as slaves of Christ, our primary aim is to please our master. And that is whose approval we ultimately seek. When we live as slaves as Christ, the gospel message will be clear. The Cretan society was no fan of Christianity. None whatsoever. They hated the exclusivity of the gospel message that only Christ can save you. They, they hated this truth of the gospel. And yet, the gospel could still be attractive in a hostile culture. It can be attractive in our culture. In our hostile culture. Regardless of what is going on around us. Because we learn from this passage that our faith is never private. Our faith is never private. People know if we're living as slaves of sin or slaves of Christ. Three times in this section of chapter 2, Paul addresses what their their life looks like to the outside world. In in verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Our faith is never private. My friends, no matter your position in life, no matter our position in life, if we are Christians, we are slaves of Christ. And every thought and every word and every deed will either adorn the gospel or disgrace the gospel. The chief end of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now consider all that God has done for you. He's freed you from the slavery of sin. He's rescued you from eternally being tormented. He's taken away the sting of death. He's brought redemption in Christ. He has had his, he had his son rise from the dead. He's brought freedom for us and forgiveness for us and righteousness for us and adopted us as his children. And he has given us and promises us and will give us eternal life. A holy God. 
He is a holy God who hates sin. And yet, he has loved the sinner enough to crucify his own son. So that we would no longer be slaves of sin. Now, brothers and sisters, in light of this, who would not choose to live as a slave of Christ rather than a slave of sin? So here's our application. As evil as human slavery is, and it is, the slavery of sin is far worse. It is far more wicked and tragic with much greater consequences. If we die as slaves to sin, we die under the judgment and wrath of God. If you are not a believer, if you have not come to faith in Christ, don't, don't let another day go by where you live as a slave to sin. Oh, my friend, trust in Christ. He promised if you come to him, he will not reject you. He will not forsake you, but he will accept you. He will receive you and he will transform you by the power of the spirit where you can become a slave of Christ. And all that that slavery entails, which is good stuff. Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, in his love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In him we have heard the word of truth. In him we were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Christ all of this is done for us. Oh, my friends, what do you want to be? A slave of sin or a slave of Christ? My appeal to you is call upon the name of the Lord and run to him in contrition and repentance. Now, if you're a Christian and maybe you're enslaved to certain sins in your life that only you maybe know about right now and you are struggling with despair and discouragement And you're not adorning the doctrine of God, but in your heart you feel that you're disgracing it. God has not abandoned you. God has not turned you away. Sin is not your master. You are a new creation in Christ. And if you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The hope and the promise of all that God has done in Christ is for you this morning. So you too run to him in in contrition and repentance. And you will again know the joy and the freedom that you first experienced at salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Christ we are no longer slaves of sin. 
But we are children of God and we are slaves of Christ. And Lord, may, may that slavery, which it is a benevolent and good and joyful and peaceful slavery, may we, may we in that slavery learn to humbly and joyfully submit to all that you ask us to do, that we might adorn your holy name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.